This morning is going to be a little bit different than what you're used to as far as my, as far as my teaching is concerned. So just understand that where the cadence changes, or the time, the length changes, <laughs> that, uh, that it is because I've, I'm presenting this a little bit differently, okay, so to kind of fit the theme of the day. So one of the difficulties I think a preacher has who preaches mostly every, uh, every, every Easter Sunday is, is looking back on the previous year's sermon and thinking, okay, I, th- I think that was good. I like my research there. I like where I went with that. And, and if he said everything he really wanted to say, he's stuck with the task of either finding a new way to say the same thing, and after three years, you run out of things to say, or, or you just re-preach the sermon, which is probably what's going to happen next year. So just, uh, so just get ready. That'll give it four years. Most of you haven't heard it, or you wouldn't remember it anyway. You might not remember it the week after I preach it. That's okay. But uh, So I went a different way. Uh, I have one objective today. Usually when I prepare sermons, I try to write out certain objectives that I might have um, so that I go through them and I'm trying to accomplish those uh, objectives. Maybe I have some benchmarks for success and I'm trying to walk through and making sure that I'm, I'm, I'm achieving all of those things as far as what the, what, the, uh, what the direction and the purpose of my sermon is and what I'm wanting it to achieve or what my goals are. So today there's one... There's one objective, and that's making much of Jesus. And if I had a title to this sermon, it's making much of Jesus. So I'm going to read a lot of this to you, but I'm going to try not to read too quickly. But I want you to just focus. And this is basically a superlative list of Christ. Okay, this is, this is who Christ is. Because I think on this day, I think on any day, our task is to make much of Jesus. In our natural platforms, and our natural daily rhythms of life, our task is to make much of Jesus Christ in everything that we do. Jesus is not an accessory that we add to our person on Sunday mornings or, or, or whenever you're in a church-type function. You are the church, and you're always on mission. You're living sent. So that's the idea, is that we're always making much of Jesus. For there's no other name that's... Given, there's no other name in heaven or, or earth or under the earth given among men by which we may be saved than the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus that strikes fear into the heart of the scoffer and hope into the heart of the saint. He's the one to whom our souls were knit and purposed to pursue. Do you get that? If you're in Christ, your purpose is to pursue him. You were knit together to him to pursue him. In times of pain, he is the object of your praise. And in times of peace, he is your pleasure. In times, I'm sorry, in times of pain, he is the object of your praise. In times of peace, he is your pleasure. The earth is his footstool, and the cosmos was constructed by the word of his power. It's in the name of Jesus that we find our instructions to pray. Don't you, isn't that interesting that Jesus taught us to pray? He says, hey, pray in my name. You know, I've never told my son, pray in your daddy's name, pray in your mama's name, pray in your own name, son. Jesus set the standard and he said, when you pray, you pray in my name because there's authority, there's power, there's a reality there and there's something to prayers when we pray in the name of Jesus. He is the way prescribed by the Father that man may travel to achieve joy and peace. This peace is a peace that transcends all understanding. The joy of the Lord is our strength the source of our perseverance and our portion. By the way, this 
whole talk today is just guided through almost 40-something different scriptures. So this is saturated in text. If you're wondering why isn't he coming out of a specific text, this is one litany of text, end over end, back to back. His glory is such that the foundations shake and the angels sing and creation makes proclamation of his renown. In his name is surety that the vilest of offenders, the scoffers, the mockers, and the wicked may be rescued from their domain of darkness and brought into his kingdom. His name is like the sweetest of honey when it touches the tongue. And when spoken, it's a, when, when spoken, and it's a heavenly symphony when heard. At his name will every living soul, present, past, and future, will bow and confess that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The demons hear his name and they respond in abject terror. To be clear, his name is Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. It's in the name of Jesus that the elect of God are washed and made new. It's in the name of Jesus that you were and are being sanctified and conformed to his image. It's in the name of Jesus that you have been justified, meaning you have been declared righteous before God. Jesus has stood on your behalf as your advocate before God and says, this person is declared righteous. They're righteous. There is no one like him. He is great, and the scripture says his name is great. The name of Jesus is better than silver and gold. It's the name that gives sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and legs to the lame. Eternity is designed to be filled with the proclamation of his name. Do you get that? Eternity was made with this in mind that Jesus' name will be proclaimed for all eternity. Forgiveness is offered and found in Jesus' name. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the one who has spoken to us in these last days. He has appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purifications for our sins and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is superior to the angels and his name is more excellent than theirs. In his name, the entire host of heaven sings of his beauty and of his worth. His beauty is the sum of all things beautiful. Jesus is the standard for beauty and yet nothing compares to him. All of heaven rests in the shadow of his radiance. We settle for things unseen today, but on that day we will behold the unfettered, unencumbered beauty of Christ. A beauty of such degree that it demands a residence of infinite proportions to contain it. Angels long to share in his beauty. It was hidden while on earth and now shines at such a degree that there is no need for the sun its beauty is made evident in the world around us. It's a beauty reflected in you and reflected in me. To see Christ in his majesty and beauty now, one would count down his days with anticipation, longing to be with him. Just a glimpse would both satisfy our deepest desires, all the while leaving us with a taste that we just can't get enough of. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. All of creation bears the mark of the Lord's beauty. 
every sunset that paints the sky with an array of soft colors, every majestic mountain that towers over the landscape, and every living thing from the insect to the great giants of the seas gives credence to the beauty of the Creator. He has made everything in its time. All things made are made to declare His majesty, to make known His fame, and to reveal His beauty. The Lord Jesus is radiant in His beauty as He is rich in His love. How do we pursue an understanding of such lofty a concept as the love of Christ? Who can comprehend that? Its simplicity is such that a child may know they are loved, and yet its complexity is revealed in the way that he can love his creation, he can love his elect, and he can love his glory all differently. Perhaps we might understand what it means to love friends differently than children, but the depth of Christ's love reaches further than any mere human capacity. The love of Christ is divine, born not just for man, but the God-man. God the Father's eternal love for his children made manifest in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Christ's love is infinite in measure. The height of his love is without peak, and the depth is without bottom. And it has all been poured out on you. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we might be called the children of God. You do not receive his love in part, church, but you received it in whole. You have it all, everything. Out of the riches of his grace, he has freely bestowed it on you. The love of Christ is not measured in health and wealth. His love is for you, and it's not substantiated in mere uh, material possessions, but rather his love was proven on the cross. Because it was on the cross that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God, where he paid the sin debt and where he became sin for all who would believe. Falling victim to trial should never cause us to question the love of Christ. It is the love of Christ that matters most in the midst of those trials. How, how would you cope with loss apart from the love of Jesus? How would you reconcile every hardship faced in your Christian life if you didn't have the love of Christ? It's the love of Christ that gives hope in the valley. His love for the saints is not merely a passive love, but it's an active love. You, the church, are the object of Christ's affections, proven by his atonement. And his love is sufficient to sustain through our fears and our doubts. And his love is sufficient because Christ himself is sufficient. Jesus is enough. So what justification did the apostles need to quit their day jobs? What justification did they need? None. They needed Jesus. They had Jesus, and their response was, I'll give it all up for you. What list of credentials did the woman with a 14-year hemorrhage need before she would consult Jesus for help? She just needed Jesus. She just needed to touch him. What kind of guarantee did the apostles demand before setting out on a journey that would, in brutal fashion, by the way, claim each one of their lives? What justification did they need? None other than they just needed Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is enough. He's the thread of hope woven through the fabric of Scripture. From beginning to end, Christ and Christ alone is sufficient for your life, for your joy, and for your peace. When the world fell and became stained with sin, the condemning effects of sin were applied to every man. And who did Jesus, who did God send as our rescuer? Jesus 
Christ's efficiency is the root of our joy when our jobs turn out to be less than what was promised. For the barren woman who looks to fulfillment in having children, her deepest joy is to realize that Jesus is enough. For the follower of Christ who spends his entire life empty-handed of earthly possessions, he will stand with arms full because he has been given everything in Jesus Christ. He's not the icing on the cake, right? He's the cake. He's the icing. He's the spoon that you eat it with, and he's the smile on your face while you eat the cake. That's Jesus. Adam was sufficient enough to bring death to the world. Jesus is sufficient enough to bring life. Why is it that a woman was willing to pour out her year's wages represented in an alabaster jar of perfume? Why would she do that? To anoint Jesus' feet because... She had Christ. What else did she need? It's right there. Why do I need this year's wages when I have Jesus? The very one who told me, don't worry about what I will drink, what I will eat, and what I will wear. Because he'll even take care of the needs of the pagans. How much more will he take care of my needs? Or he knows the needs of the pagans, and how much more will he take care of my needs? Why do we cling so tightly to earthen treasures when the centerpiece of heaven is ours by grace through faith? The Apostle Paul said that he counted all things to be lost compared to the value of knowing Jesus as Lord. So my question is, what makes a man consider all that he's worked for his entire life to be lost? To be of no value? What makes a man arrive at that point? What could possibly alleviate the everyday burdens and necessities of life? It's Jesus. It was Jesus who had the nerve to say that we shouldn't worry ourselves with things concerning physical life, about what we will eat, what we will drink, and what we will wear. It was Jesus who had the nerve to tell a rich young ruler to, to sell all of his possessions and follow me. But do you have the nerve to trust him? The sufficiency of Christ means that when all is stripped away, when tragedy strikes and it seems that life has taken everything away from you, your response is, Christ is enough. Because our hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but we wholly trust on Jesus' name because Christ is the solid rock that we stand and all other ground is seeking sand. His sufficiency he is our sufficiency in life, our hope in death, and he's the object of eternity's worship. Many words have been extended to describe the king of kings, not the least of which is the term glorious. The glory of Jesus is the manifestation of his attributes. John Piper writes, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. It is a word that encompasses the true nature of Jesus. His ways are glorious, his truth is glorious, his presence is glorious, and everything about him is glorious. All that he has made is a display of his gloriousness. He is glorious. It's a hard word to define. It is his glory that filled the temple in Isaiah's beatific vision, Isaiah chapter 6. It is his glory that Moses wanted to see while on the mountain. At the smallest glimpse, it caused his appearance to change. It is the glory of Jesus that fills the earth. When John saw the glory of Christ, he fell as though dead upon seeing the glory of Jesus. His glory supplies light to heaven and renders the sun obsolete for eternity. 
Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in the fullness of glory, restored to what he was when he created all things. Consider how those who encountered the glory of Jesus responded. Moses saw the glory of the Lord, and the effect made the entire nation of Israel tremble upon seeing the effect that meeting with Jesus and seeing his glory had on Moses. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and was, quote, undone, ruined. He had become unraveled, completely and utterly humbled and beside himself at the presence of Jesus and his glory. For most, the true glory of Christ was hidden. They saw a man, or we saw a man, that none esteemed, a man smitten of God, a man afflicted, a king whose crown and scepter were traded in for rags, a savior who looked common, normal, and bland, a hero with no parades, no recognition. Most who saw him had no idea who they were even looking at. He had no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him. His glory was veiled by the flesh he would put on when he emptied himself to become a man. It is of his glory that John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, writes, On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. Do you echo the desire of Moses when his one request was that he might see the glory of the Lord? If the glory of Jesus is the going public of his holiness, church, the cross proves to be the definitive display of that glory. Because on the cross, it wasn't just a man who was crucified. Many men died by crucifixion before and after Jesus, and their deaths did nothing for us except supply another page in the history books of men who had died by crucifixion. But Christ's death was unique. Jesus' death was unique because he was the only man to ever die with complete innocence. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that what we might become the righteousness of God in him. His death was unique because he was the only one with the authority and the power to stop the event, but rather he subjected himself to the will of the Father. Jesus' suffering was different. It was different from all others who died by crucifixion. It was different from all others who have died ever. God's holy hatred for sin was released onto Christ, making him the object and the appeasement of God's holy hatred eternal displeasure against sin. Like a dam holding water of infinite volume, God's wrath when it burst and zeroed in on Jesus, therefore satisfying the divine justice of the Father against the sins of all who would believe. The death of Christ, if I can borrow from John Owen again, was the death of death. The Apostle Paul was declaring the power of the cross when he wrote, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, death for the believer died as well. 
John Owen also said, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. The death of Christ is an event to celebrate, not an event to mourn. His death was the long-awaited fulfillment of a promise made thousands of years before he arrived. It was the predetermined plan of God, the Father, to hand over the Son. His death meant that every promise made connected was sure to come to pass. Connected with that crucifixion, connected with his death. The sacrifice of Jesus is the surety of the saints. The death of Christ was also unique because it was substitutionary. One of the most remarkable realities surrounding the atonement of Christ is that he took our place. No one is less deserving of God's wrath than Jesus, and no one is more deserving of his wrath than you. But while we were helpless and weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Humanity was created by God and made into his image. Humanity was made as the crown of his creation, given all that he needed and had fellowship with God, but it wasn't enough for man. Man's heart was set on evil. He chased the desires of his flesh, and though it was a prize more lofty, as though it was a prize more lofty than God's own affections for him. The sins of man rendered him and all humanity spiritually dead. A death to such a degree that the cross would become foolishness. A depravity so consuming that man became unable to accept the gospel. He became a lover of darkness and hostile towards God and incapable of pleasing him. All four of those straight from the text. The crown of God's creation became the object of his holy indignation. The object of his love became the object of his wrath. The exchange truth for lies and elevated creature above creator. And Christ substituted himself for that. The death of Christ is unique because death couldn't hold him. The resurrection of Jesus is the final piece of the gospel. You can't just have hope in the death of Christ, but also in the resurrection of Christ. Without, their, without death, there could be no resurrection. Without the resurrection, there can be no salvation. The resurrection ensures that our deepest sorrow is born, out of our deepest sorrow is born our loftiest of joys. Jesus told his disciples regarding his death and resurrection, he said, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. The cause of your sorrow will become the cause of your joy. My death is the root of your joy. The resurrection ensures a joy so deeply rooted that it cannot be taken up and it cannot be taken away. It cannot be taken away because it is intrinsic to salvation in Christ. The joy, this joy is that what we experience when we're facing death and is that God reminds us that his grace is sufficient and that his power is made perfect in our weakness. This joy is what we experience when we face the junk in life and realize that every hardship is producing steadfastness and working for our favor. It's a joy in knowing that because of the gospel, I now have an advocate with the Father. It's a joy in knowing that because of the gospel, I have an advocate with the Father. It's knowing that the favor I find with God is not contingent upon my accomplishments, but contingent upon his accomplishments. The resurrection of Christ ensures a joy that cannot be lost to death. 
because death is swallowed up in victory, is what the Scripture says. The Father crushed the Son so that the Son could crush death. And only Jesus is worthy of such a task. So how do you articulate the worth of Christ? Can you measure infinity? He's worthy enough to redirect the focus of heaven's worship, Revelation 5. He's worthy enough to have a new song. He's worthy enough to have God the Father speak on His behalf on more than one occasion. His worth is of such degree that through His death alone, all who believe may, li- may have life. He is the centerpiece of heaven and the dominating theme of the biblical narrative. He is typified, He is foreshadowed, He's looked at, or He's looked back on in every book of the Bible. He's your substitute, He's your advocate, He's your Savior, He's your Lord, He's your hope, He's your help, and He's your confidence. He's your strength and He's your portion. He knows your needs, He meets your needs, and He is your highest need Himself. He's your reason for boasting, your freedom from fear, and the root of your joy. He's the door of salvation. He's the bread of life and the only true substance. He's the light of the world and the good shepherd. He's not just resurrected. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and he is the true vine who gives life to its branches. He's not trivial. He's not ordinary, church. He's not an accessory that we add on Christmas and on Easter. He's not the first in a list of many because he belongs in a category all by himself. He's the first, he's the last, he's the beginning, he's the end, he's the word of God, he's God in flesh. He's worth your time, he's worth your allegiance, and he's worth your sacrifice. He is the motivation behind the songs of the angelic host of heaven. If Jesus is worthy of the Father's recognition, you better believe he's worthy of yours. He is our great high priest, our example, and a faithful husband to his bride. He is the hope of the saint and the terror of the sinner. Jesus is the exemplar of that which is good, and I hope that you know him this morning. May our lives accurately reflect the glory of Jesus. May his name be made great among his bride, and may our sights be set on his unparalleled beauty, and our lives prove his infinite worth. Jesus is enough.